This morning, we have the benefit of Jason Taylor and his son, Coram, that are here. He is the biblical soul pastor at that church, and then he's going to be up here and lead us in the word. So let's bring him up here and welcome him to our church. Jason, thank you for being here. Thank you. Good morning. Such a privilege. Wow. Need another cup of coffee this morning. Privilege to join you this morning. You've got a beautiful church and uh, such a warm welcome. So thank you for that as uh, my son Cohen and I come and uh, join you this morning. So I'm going to just back up just a little bit. Lights in my eyes there. If you would, we're going to jump into a passage in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 1 through 5. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5. Now, I am a biblical soul care pastor, which means part of my role is that I get to do counseling at our church, biblical counseling, and so I often get to, to preach and teach and share what the Bible says about different counseling topics and so this morning, it's my joy and privilege to talk about something that I think is relevant to all of us, and that is the idea of self-esteem, biblical self-esteem. I think the Bible actually has a little something to say about it. While the word biblical self-esteem or self-esteem is not found in any translation that I know of, of the Bible, I do think the, there, are some relative, or there are some principles that are relative to our lives that we should really explore. So we're going to do that this morning. We're going to read verses 1 through 5, so join me if you would, either in your Bible or on your device, 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 5. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time comes, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I met with a group of students this past week, and I asked them, what is self-esteem? And it was fun to hear their answers, and I got a variety of different answers, a variety of different thoughts coming from a variety of different backgrounds. Essentially, we boiled down the definition to something very simple like this. It's a favorable opinion of one's self. And so that sort of raises the question for us, should we even be thinking about oneself? Is that something that's biblical, and how do we, how do we deal with that? You see, the, the core question that we realized as we were talking through this together is that as we think about self-esteem, we're really asking ourselves the question, do I matter? Do I matter? Now, I, I would venture to say this. I would venture to say, in fact, I would venture to bet that every single person in this room at some point in their journey in life has asked some version of that question of, to themselves. Do I matter? What purpose do I serve in the world? And so therefore, I think this message has application to every single person. It doesn't matter if you're in elementary school. 
or if you're in senior living somewhere, you are definitely asking yourself that question. The Apostle Paul is probably asking himself that question as well in this passage. You see, he had a big impact on the church of Corinth. And others have had a big impact as well. Aquila and Priscilla and Apollos and Peter and others have come in and, and they have preached at the church and they have shared in the church and the church has grown and, and now there's, there's conflict. The church is divided. And that's why Paul is arguing, or that's why Paul is writing to this church that's arguing. They're arguing over who's more significant in the church. Who matters more? And see, as a spiritual father, Paul addresses the church. Because these people were finding their sense of purpose, their sense of self-worth, their sense of self-respect in a relationship that they had with some particular church leader. Whether that was Paul, or Peter, or Apollos, or some other leader. And so Paul's writing this letter. And the church developed opinions. They developed opinions on who was better. Not just who was a better church member, but like who was better Christian? Who was better in their church because of their connection to Paul or Apollos or Peter? And they're fighting. It's conflict. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 12, Paul states that their fights, and they says this, each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Peter or I follow Christ. See, this is such a human thing to do, isn't it? We find our personal value in whatever group we identify with or hang out with or connect with. In chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, Are you not of the flesh and only behaving in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not just being merely human? So it's a human thing to ask ourselves, do we matter? It's a human thing to answer that question by connecting to other people. In fact, I venture to say we've done that in our life. We can see that. Let me take you back a little ways. You know, back when I was in high school, we connected with people. We had, now students don't laugh if you're in the room. We had jocks. We had goths. We had nerds. We had preps. Come on, I see some head nodding. I know you know what I'm talking about. And if you're a student today and you're in this room, you probably connect with different groups too, but you connect maybe differently. Instead of based upon an affinity, you're connecting on a cause. Maybe you connect over global warming or capitalism or socialism or gender identity or some other cause. But you've got those groups too. Yeah, what about college? Right? Do you not have fraternities and sororities? Don't we connect with them? I mean, we've got signs and things, right? Like secret code words and stuff for each one of those groups. Our identity gets wrapped up in that. Adults, don't you do the same thing? I'm a Democrat, I'm a Republican. Or I, I identify with a particular leader or an idea. I'm liberal or I'm conservative. We connect with those groups too. 
So I think you know what I'm talking about. We find our self-worth in these groups. Who we associate with often defines us. It defines us and gives us this sense of self-worth. Our connections, our colleagues, our companions. You know, before I went into being a pastor, I, I had a major career shift seven years ago, but before that, I was in education. And I could tell you, I can spot a teacher a mile away. I knew exactly who they were, right? Because I was a teacher. It was my identity. I was an administrator of a school. I could spot them. I knew who they were. I can look over a crowd and I can pretty much identify them. It's like flashing light right over their head, right? Because I identified with that group and I'm thinking, hey, you are just like me. We find our worth, our value in the people we connect with. And Paul understands this. But he's saying, look guys, this is merely human. We've got so much more to be thinking through. He implies that there's so much more to life than connecting with or finding a sense of self-worth with these groups of people. It's, it's just merely only human. He wants us to go beyond that. He wants us to go beyond the simple fleshly things, and he wants us to think in, in a spiritual way, even as it relates to our, our personal feelings, our self-worth, our self-respect, our self-esteem. And see, Paul writes right now in the midst of this conflict, and he's already applied these thoughts to himself. That's what verse 6 says. We didn't read that, but he, he says, I've already applied these thoughts to myself, and now he's asking you to do the same. And so as a spiritual father and as someone that we should imitate, that's what he asks us to do. Verse 16, he says, be imitators of me. You know, I, I have this photo. I Actually, I've lost it, and it's breaking my heart that I've lost it. But it's my dad years ago, right? Now, I'm, I'm, I'm going way back for a second, okay? So, so years ago, he's in the photo, and he's got the cutoff jeans, you know, maybe the first or second time that this came around. And then he's got this T-shirt on with cutoff sleeves showing the pipes. He's got the mullet when it really was originally popular, right? And not only that, but he's got tube socks, like white socks pulled all the way up to his, his knees. Two stripes, two colors, blue and red, perfectly gleaming white socks. And he's mowing the yard, right? He's got our lawn boy push mower. You know, it's a green one. They don't, I don't even think they make Lawn Boy any, anymore, so there you go. That sets me back again. And here's my dad. He's, he's mowing the yard with this mower, and the, the grass was kind of tall, and so you could very clearly see the stripe of grass that he had mowed, right? And, and so why am I telling you all this? It's because about four feet behind him is little Jason with his plastic mower and his pulled-up socks. I wanted to be just like my dad. I still want to be just like my dad. And so Paul, like a spiritual father, is, is crying out to us and saying, hey, I want you to be like me as I imitate Christ. And so as we could do that, the first way that we can be like Paul 
is to view yourself as a servant. That's your first point on your sheet. View yourself as a servant. Now, let me ask you a question. Do we have any professional servants in the room? Maybe. Some of you might consider yourself uh, like uh, public officials. You're a public servant. But, but do we have any butlers in the room? You serve your wife, don't you? Do you? Are you really a butler? That is amazing. I, I got to meet you afterwards. That is fantastic. What's your name? Alan. That is awesome. But I have to say, you are the first, Alan, that in all the times I've asked that question, that has ever come up. So I am really excited to know you, and I can't wait to meet you afterwards. But generally speaking, we don't aspire to being a servant. Why is that? So Paul, this amazing guy, part of the church, big impact on the church, says, I just want you to view me as a servant. Verse 1 says, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. See, faithfully serving God and serving others, that's exactly Paul's mission, and that's how he wanted to be viewed. No more, no less. He viewed himself as a servant of Christ and a steward of truth. That's how he's asking the Corinthians to regard him, esteem him, to think of him. Now, this is really fascinating when you consider the history of Paul's life, right? You have two sides to Paul. You have Paul the failure, and you have Paul the success. So let's think about that for a second. Paul the failure labels himself as a blasphemer, as a persecutor of the church, an insolent opponent of Christ, the chief of sinners. You can find those thoughts in 1 Timothy chapter 1. But Paul the success could have easily identified himself by his his intelligence, his training, his background as a Pharisee, being a key influential figure in the day and age, going on multiple, multiple missionary journeys, starting multiple churches. He wrote 13 out of 27 books of the New Testament. It's almost, that's like 45%, somewhere in that range. Check my math. Amazing. He stood before Caesar to share the gospel. He was in jail several times, shipwrecked, beaten, healed sick, and possessed, and suffered so, so much. See, he could have pitied himself for his failure, or he could have been arrogant, and he could have been boastful on his ministry success. Instead, Paul just cherishes this humbler perspective. He identifies as the role of a servant, as the role of a steward for Christ. Now, generally speaking, a, a servant, as we think of them, is not held in high regard, but his call is to please his master in all things, at all cost. In fact, in many times, in many ways throughout history, a servant doesn't even have an identity. 
their identity is wrapped up in that of their master. A steward has a fiduciary or legal responsibility to manage another's resources righteously. They're the personal agents of the, of the one whose resources they manage, right? Their job is to increase the personal worth, increase the personal value and recognition of their master. A steward is to be found trustworthy with these resources, not managing for their own gain, but managing for the gain of their master. See, for both the servant and the steward, what's most important is what their master thinks of them. And that's the key principle for today is it's most important out of this passage, right? It's most important how my master thinks of me. You see, Paul's value was God-given, not driven by man's approval. Paul's personal value was unpretentious, not driven by pride, but by humility. Paul's personal value was found in his faithfulness, not his popularity. Paul's personal value was found in the one he represented. Therefore, whether he failed or whether he had ministry success, Paul was good. Paul was okay because he represented the master. And because he allowed man's opinion to be small and God's opinion to be big. Notice in verse 3, there's the word but. So it's this contrasting word. Yes, I'm this servant. Yes, I'm this steward. Yes, I'm responsible for all these great things because I have this great master. But you know what? It's a really small thing. What you think of me, and it's a big thing, what God thinks of me. Right? I don't really even care what you think of me, but I really care what God thinks of me. So let's do the same. Minimize man's perspective. Minimize man's perspective. Paul expresses that it's not consequential to him what the Corinthians or anyone else thinks. His self-esteem is not driven by the opinions of man. It's driven by the opinion of his God. Man doesn't have the right to judge whether he's trustworthy or not. Whether he is a steward of God's truth, only God has that right. And Paul knew that it was his faithfulness that mattered to God, nothing else. It didn't matter how he looked. It didn't matter if he was six foot five and 250 pounds with muscles ripping out of him. It didn't matter if he was this stud athlete or if he was an amazing, funny man with lots of friends, the life of the party. None of that mattered. The only thing that mattered was his faithfulness to God. For some of us, though, it might be a temptation to regularly continue to ask, do I matter? And we look to these other things and these people in our lives to answer that question. It's fascinating here because Paul labels three groups of people. Three groups of people that are the voices in our lives that try to answer the question for us. Or we listen to these voices to answer the question of, do I matter? Here's the first voice. Looking at verse 3. It's the individual judgments of others. He says, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you. He's talking to the church, this little group of people in the world. And he's, he's really saying, you know what? 
it doesn't matter what you think I bring to the table. It's small to me. It's not big to me. But you know, we as people often have these small groups of people in our life. And some of us really look to them to fulfill whether or not we have a sense of self-esteem, high or low. It might be your parents. It might be your children. It might be your wife or your husband. It might be your boss or a very small group of friends. It might be your colleagues, whoever it might be. It's, it's this small group of people that informs whether or not you have worth. Second, he says, but with me, it's a small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. I don't think he's talking about like the judge, right, with the long black robe and, and the gable, gavel, I can never say that thing right, the hammer, right, that, the, that you hit down like this and declare your final judgments. I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think he's talking about the court of public opinion. The court of public opinion. What does the whole group think that I bring to the table? What do you... So I'm from Nashville. What do all y'all think? Right? All y'all is the plural of y'all. You've got y'all, and then you've got all y'all. You need to know that when you go to Memphis, right, for your mission trip. When they're saying y'all. All y'all. It's the whole group. And I, I gotta just, I gotta tell you, for me personally, this one's my soft spot. You know, it's easy for me to walk through those doors and think, what do all y'all think of me? And then I start cracking these awkward jokes because I'm nervous inside. Or in my mind, I start to think, I wonder what that person thinks of me. And that person, what's this side of the room thinking? And it can impact what I do. And then I can become a people pleaser. Why? Because I value your opinion more than God's opinion. I maximize you and minimize God rather than minimize you and maximize God. And I think we all have our soft spots, don't we? I think if we were truly honest with ourselves and with others, it might be the small group, it might be the big group, or the third one, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. Self-judgment. For some of you in this room, your opinion is really the only one that matters. And if you think you're great, then you're great. And if you think you stink, then you stink. And sometimes we, we listen to that voice. Paul Tripp said, our best counselor is ourself. In other words, no one speaks to ourself more than ourself. In your mind and in your heart, you're constantly turning these kinds of thoughts. And maybe you're this person who values your own opinion, what you think you bring. Sadly, many of us fall into this trap of listening to these three voices. And we can, we can fall then in the idea of self-esteem, self-esteem on a spectrum, right, that goes from completely insecure to completely narcissistic. Right? We can, we can pity ourselves and live in despair, or we can walk around thinking we're God's gift to humankind. It creates a very self-focused person. And God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
I think this passage is clear that Paul did not display pride by either diminishing himself or exalting himself. I think he just walked into it with a humble approach. You see, from the beginning of this passage, Paul didn't allow his mind to be dominated by either the good or the bad judgments of other people. He didn't seem to boast or build up his ego by replaying positive comments over and over in his mind. It also appears that he didn't focus on the criticisms. Think about it. I mean, he's being compared to these other leaders. And yet he didn't seem to focus on those criticisms. Instead, he just didn't make it about Paul. You see, he didn't compare himself to Apollos or Peter. I don't think he got competitive. Oh, you know what I'm talking about, right? I I mean, I love competition. I love sports. It's a great thing. We can't play a board game in our house without being kind of competitive. Like, that's just how it is. How many times does this competition lead to fights? And that's not the place in the church for those things. He also chose not to boast or brag over his skills or gifts or intelligence. Boy, I've seen a lot of smack talk in my life. You know, I was an elementary school principal, and and these elementary kids have the funniest kinds of smack talk. Sometimes it just doesn't even make sense. I saw one kid fight with another kid, and and, and he said, you know what? Your house is so old, when you ring the doorbell, the toilet flushes. (laughs) And then they got in a fight because the kid was so offended by that. But the reality is, smack talk happens. Why? Because we boast, and we have to defend ourselves to other people to establish our place but see Paul knows who he is he gains the value from what God thinks of him not what anybody else thinks of him and so he even avoids boasting this leads us to our next point like Paul we should maximize God's perspective maximize God's perspective look at verse 4 he says For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. It's the Lord who judges Paul. Paul emphasizes the importance of a small, itty-bitty perspective of man and a big, enormous perspective of God. And so he goes beyond the simple, humanistic thoughts of self-esteem and glorifies God by maximizing Him. So remember the three voices? What if, we, what if we reframe those three voices and we maximize God in, in doing so? And we, we think about approaching it like Paul with self-forgetfulness. He says here, in fact, I don't even judge myself. He's not even sitting there thinking about things in his mind over and over and over again. He's saying, I don't care what you think, and I don't even care what I think. I care what God thinks. And it's about trusting what God says about him and nobody else. And he just kind of forgets about himself. There's a great little book by Tim Keller called Blessed Self-Forgetfulness. 
If you've never read it, put it on your list. Write it down on your notes because it's a short, very accessible read, but really, really good as it relates to this passage and our self-esteem and our ego, self-forgetfulness. Second, what if we just remembered that God justifies? In other words, Paul didn't have to justify himself. He didn't have to defend himself or boast or smack talk or do any of those things. Instead, he rested. He said, I am not thereby acquitted. He's not focusing on their thoughts. It's the Lord who judges me. Now, from a spiritually legal perspective, I want you to imagine a courtroom scene. I want you to imagine where God the Father is the judge and and Jesus is our lawyer. And I'm standing there, I'm really guilty, right? And, And Jesus stands before the Father and he shows him his marks in his hands, right? The, the nail holes in his hands, and he shows him the hole in his side, and he, and he appears as if he were a lamb that were just slain. And he says, Father, he's mine. Forgive him. And so there's that hammer again, and God slams the hammer down, and he declares me righteous. Like, think of Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his love toward me. When I am a sinner... Christ died for me. The loose paraphrased version of that is that God demonstrates His love for me. And while I was a knucklehead, He did the most amazing act of love to declare me righteous. That's what God says about me. That's what God says about Paul. He's declared righteous. And now this this debt account that I've created, kind of like a credit card, right? Like, I've, I've, every time I sin, I add a debt into that account. Now Christ's righteousness is now imputed on my account, and I'm wiped clean. I am made or declared righteous. That's what God says about me. Not only that, but the Father sits on His throne, on His judge's chair, whatever that's called, and He slams that hammer, whatever it's called again, and He says, you know what? We're going to do one more legal action. He says, I'm going to adopt you as my child. You're not just declared righteous, and I'm not just going to set you loose. I'm now going to give you everything that your lawyer gets. Everything that the son gets is yours. The inheritance that he has is now yours. And if you focus on those things more than other things, how refreshing that is. Jesus, be my center. Great song this morning. Like the Holy Spirit knew what he's doing bringing and aligning our thoughts together. And now I walk away from that courtroom scene, declared righteous. I have Christ's righteousness imputed to my account, and I'm His child. And that's so much better than anything else. And third, Jesus rewards. I love the idea of the future Bema seat. This is not the the judgment of all eternity where God separates those who go to the lake of fire and those who go to heaven. This is a judgment based upon rewards that the believer gets for what they do in this life. And so we receive rewards. And these rewards that are pure are the ones done in faith. And so remember that Jesus rewards us 
for our faithful actions as stewards and servants. And that drives us and motivates us to think less about self or be worried about less about self and just go serve and love others. Now, this may all sound very theologically lofty, maybe even churchy. Let me bring it all down to five practical suggestions. First, confess sins daily. Right? It removes pride and cultivates humility. Paul says, I'm not aware of anything against myself. Why? I believe because he kept a short sin list. He was running to God and confessing those sins. 1 John 1, 9 says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. How amazing. Number two, trust that God forgives you. How many times do we have buts in our life? I know that Jesus died for me, but, and we hang on to the shame, and we hang on to those things of the past. I just want to be careful that we don't think that I'm saying you should forgive yourself. You should trust God's forgiveness over your life. Self-forgiveness is not even a real thing. It's not a thing by definition, and it's not even a thing scripturally. So let's just take the definition really fast. Forgiveness is releasing someone else of the debt that they owe you. That's what it is. I didn't create my own debt. I did not create a debt against myself. I cannot also release a debt against myself. You don't release your debt. Jesus does. But I do recognize that the struggle to trust his forgiveness is real. And so take his yoke upon you because his burden is easy and light and he will give you rest for your souls. Third, put your shame into words. Meaning, cast these feelings on the Savior. When you start to feel them and they, they come back and, and you know that you trust God for His forgiveness in your life, just keep reminding yourself of what God says over you. Number four, tell others about Jesus. Be a steward of His truth. Be a steward of God's truth by being faithful and go tell others. Don't let hypocrisy be a crutch for you. In other words, we are sinning daily because we're human. If we're running to the Savior and asking for His forgiveness and trusting in His forgiveness, go out and tell others about Jesus. And number five, find ways to serve others. It develops humility and a pure heart. You'll be like Paul, I think, if you do these five things, and ultimately like Jesus. And ultimately, you're cultivating genuine faithfulness. And while you cultivate that faithfulness, the last point is wait. Wait for God's ultimate sense of approval. You see, that's my soft spot. I want approval from the whole group. I want that pat on the back to build me up, right? And it's not bad to get that approval, but if I'm depending on that for my worth and identity, I have a problem. But if I'm waiting for God's approval in my life, and I'm looking forward to the time where I will be resurrected and I will be before Him and He will say, well done, good and faithful servant. That is the sweet spot of where I should be because we don't gain a righteousness from a relationship or connection with man. 
We gain it from our Savior. So, Paul, he says, look, in your church, stop with the conflict. He says, stop being so judgy of each other. Unify for the sake of the gospel. Because at the appropriate time, the Lord will judge and He will disclose the purposes of your heart. So wait. We're not in a culture that's good at waiting, are we? Instant oatmeal. Fast food. Overnight mail. Microwaves. We have a lot of... I was in the checkout line the other day at the store, and there was a timer... And it said, you have two minutes to wait. And I was impatient, like I thought I should be up checking out right now. And I think I have the spiritual gift of choosing the longest line possible. It always happens. I'm an impatient person, and I think most of us are. But Paul's saying, wait. We want to feel good about ourselves, and we want it now. But it's worth the wait. We don't want to feel like we're being judged by others. We can't control that, but we can remind ourselves rather than defend ourselves. We can maximize God, and we can minimize man's opinion. We can maximize God's perspective and minimize man's perspective. You see, Paul really isn't arguing for low self-esteem or high self-esteem. He isn't arguing for passively allowing someone to judge us And He's not allowing us to be defensive. Rather, He's just simply encouraging us through self-forgetfulness, minimize man's perspective and maximize what God thinks in your life. Waiting for the honor that comes from God, His commendation, His approval, His praise. So be humble by waiting. Like Paul who didn't care about what you think or even what he thought. He really only cared about what God thought, God thinks. (laughs) And remember, a truly humble person will not downplay their abilities, nor will they exalt their abilities. They will not hate themselves, nor will they love themselves. Rather, they'll simply be humble like Paul. Let's pray.